What is the Alberta Sovereignty Act? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jeff Sigalette. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jeff Sigalette. Jeff is the director of the UBC Centre for Constitutional Law and Legal Studies and an assistant professor of political science at the University of British Columbia's Okanagan campus. He has held research fellowships at McGill's Research Group on Constitutional Studies, Stanford Law School's Constitutional Law Centre, and Queen's Law School. In 2018, he received his PhD in Public Law and Political Theory from Princeton University. Jeff, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex, for having me on. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. It's great to have you on, Jeff. And as you may know, we base each of our episodes on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what is the Alberta Sovereignty Act? And sometimes I like to start episodes by tackling the question from a really broad perspective, doing some historical context and so on and so forth. But I think today it, I, it actually makes sense just to jump right into some of the meat of the matter on the act itself and, and then go from there. So our first stop is let's just tackle the basics of the act. You know, this is officially called what we're going to be talking about today, the Alberta Sovereignty within United Canada Act. And it's something the Alberta legislature introduced. Let's start with your understanding of what this is exactly, then get to the intention behind it. And our conversation will probably naturally evolve to broader themes and historical context and so on. But, but, but first and foremost, what's going on here? What, what the heck's going on with this act from Alberta? Well, essentially, the act is the fruit of the contest for the United Conservative Party in Alberta. Um, and so once Jason Kenney uh, resigned, he said he didn't have enough of a support in the last um, uh, leadership poll. Um, he, he, uh, he said he resigned, and there was a leadership contest, and, and many of the contestants suggested and supported this idea of a sovereignty act, an act that would actively um, assert Alberta's constitutional jurisdiction within Canada and target federal laws that were thought to be unconstitutional. And Daniel Smith was probably used the idea of a sovereignty act as a, and it probably was one of the, one of her flagship ideas that helped draw support and helped her win that UCP contest. Um, and so what you ended up with is this act that now is an act, it's, it's law and it's had, I think it's got royal assent. And, um, and what the final version of the act does is it allows the legislature to pass resolutions declaring that federal certain federal laws or, or or regulations are unconstitutional and then directing cabinet and ministers to to take action accordingly to not enforce them and uh, and so we can get into the real nitty-gritty controversies about what the act does in its in its in its mechanics um, but that's the basic story there it's a it's an act meant to target federal law and to have and to ensure that provinces the, the province doesn't enforce it, and um, and to do that in a kind of um, in a kind of legislatively flag way, uh, and, and so that's somewhat distinct from um, what we already had, which is ministers having the power to not enforce federal laws within uh, their own in terms of their own power over provincial officials, right? Mm-hmm. That already existed. It was already even before the Sovereignty Act was introduced, right? The, Provincial Minister of Justice was talking about not enforcing new federal firearms laws. But what the Sovereignty Act does is it kind of adds a bit of a democratic theater to that power and links that power to specific legislative resolutions. Um, And that goes over pretty well with the UCP base, especially in the rural areas. Um, It may be maybe a little less uniformly popular in Calgary, but we'll see how it sells there. And um, it's probably not very popular in Edmonton because Edmonton likes uh, the NDP. Um, but uh, that's sort of a basic lay of the land there is that in Alberta, federal the federal government has been perceived as encroaching on provincial jurisdiction in a variety of lines, in a variety of ways. Um, and the uh, Sovereignty Act is a sort of um, clear signal, to particularly to the party base, that Alberta's a legislature and, and the government are willing to stand up to that. Great. And there's, there's a bunch of things you touched on that I want to drill down into further. 
Um, but first, before we get into some of that other stuff, I do want to drill down a little bit more into the nits and grits of of the whole the act itself and and you know some of the powers that you know it enables and so on and so forth. So first things first, as of today's recording, uh, you and I talking here. So this is not just introduced act. Has it passed or has it not? It's passed. Yeah, it's law. Okay. So, so, so it's law and in, in sort of the Alberta provincial legislature passed this act. So let's talk a little more specifically. You talked a bit about the intention about it, but what, what are the kinds of things that can actually enable uh, from a technical legal perspective, the folks in Alberta to do in their jurisdiction? Okay. So for take an example of this simple example is it could, you already had the federal minister of justice saying he would enforce, uh, he wouldn't enforce certain kinds of firearms. Uh, prosecution. They wouldn't prosecute certain things, right? And they take over prosecutions of of uh, of, of fi- certain federal firearms. And, and for and sorry, interrupt, Jeff. I just want to say because we have to walk through it carefully. I don't want to confuse listeners, especially outside of Canada, too. So, for instance, the federal government has certain powers in this case, in this example, for instance, to regulate firearms in Canada. So they they pass an act, whatever it is, and then sorry to interrupt, but you were saying then the province could. Yeah. So so this sort of gets to sort of an interesting problem here, right? Like uh, that. Basic story here is that the federal government, under our constitution, does have have power to regulate criminal law and law about things like firearms relating to it, relating to criminal law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there's no doubt that the federal government has the power to make regulations about firearms, whatnot, for all, all across Canada. But the provinces have a strong constitutional claim to to jurisdiction over prosecuting and enforcing federal law, actually. They have they have a constitutional head of power designated about um, the administration of justice. Now that story about what that means has kind of changed over Canadian history, and we can get into that. But let's just take the basics. So there's basic provincial power over prosecuting, over prosecuting and and administering justice, or police, let's say. And there's the federal power to make the law about things like firearms and criminal law and criminal law, right? Well, what the Alberta Sovereignty Act might do is make it so that the legislature flags a new a new amendment to the firearms law, or whatnot, uh, or a regulation or a set of regulations relating to it as unconstitutional. They're saying that they're they're going to far above uh, what the federal power should be, or they're arbitrary. So the, the Alberta legislature might flag that law or regulation as unconstitutional. And then direct the minister, uh, direct the minister of justice or or the uh, or the cabinet to to take certain measures. It could be more broad, saying just broadly speaking, do everything you can to not enforce this and ensure that we don't cooperate with this. And that can take a variety of what of of uh, and then in its mechanics, what that does is it enables the um, is it is it statutorily authorizes the exercise of provincial non enforcement. Or non-cooperation, and it also does what it has this thing called a Henry VIII clause in it, which allows for the um, the uh, on-the-fly amendment of regulations and um, and uh, and orders uh, relating to the enforcement of certain provincial laws. Right, an early draft of the, this is sort of important to note. So, an early draft had a full-fledged Henry VIII clause in it, which allowed cabinet to not just amend regulations and um, and, uh, and 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 whatnot, um, but also to amend Alberta's own statutes to ensure non-compliance with federal law, mm. right? And what happened is there was a lot of criticism from folks about that, saying some overblown criticism, but some very some 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 right on the mark criticism that that can be a pretty arbitrary power, overriding not overriding but sort of overly delegating legislative power to change Alberta's own laws to the cabinet. And I was, I was, I've said that the, some of those criticisms of that early part of the law were fair. And so what happened is Alberta then amended the law to, to rein that in. But we can talk a little more about that later. Let's just get the basics down. So the Alberta legislature passes this resolution saying, hey, don't enforce that firearms law, don't cooperate with it, along a variety of lines. And that will enable the Minister of Justice then to take action along the lines of saying, we're not going to direct any prosecutions at word, uh, of of laws under these new regulations. Um, we will not. Uh, we will direct the our the RCMP not to arrest people under them. Um, or, I mean, it could take a variety of different kinds of forms, right? And it could even take the and it could also take the forms of of different kinds of spending initiatives, right? You could say, well, insofar as there's money allocated to this kind of scheme, none of that money will go to 
anything relating to confiscating firearms. Mm. Um, and that will be something authorized by that resolution. Uh, and like I said, it's not necessarily something that the legislature, that the minister or the governor or the um, cabinet couldn't do already. But it's something that, by, but the way the mechanics of the law work is it ties that to a resolution that expires after two years. So that's in the sort of meat of the law. It also is open to judicial review. So it's open to courts reviewing this and saying, okay, is the minister actually following this law or not? Is it, and is it, and is it reasonable? And it requires the standard of review to be a reasonableness standard, which is a looser standard, meaning there needs to be broad deference to the idea that um, unless the minister is doing something or the government or cabinet is doing something really totally unrelated to that resolution, like no reasonable person could see it as even remotely related to it, then it's going to be reasonable. And so the legislature is itself telling the courts how to review the reasonableness of the law if it's challenged under the under its um, under administrative law, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's also kinds of people raising questions about that, and we can talk a little bit more, get into a little bit more about how that works. Um, I'm not an, an expert on administrative law at all, um, but I kind of, I, I do have some views about some of the concerns raised there. Um, but that's sort of an, a broad-based overview of what's going on here, is that the law itself says it's supposed to be constitutional. It's supposed to be interpreted in a way that's consistent with the Constitution of Canada. So that means it's about non-enforcement not about declaring federal laws um, to be null. Right. And so saying to, it's not telling the federal minister of justice that he can go to cowboys and break federal laws about gambling, right? Like, or like right. break, break federal criminal laws, uh, right of ways, or that he can go and break provisions of the criminal code uh, prohibiting uh, the sale of sex, right? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like he's not, he's not enabled to break federal criminal law because the law says that all persons are still subject to obeying federal law. It's just that provincial entities are enabled to not enforce federal law that's been declared unconstitutional. And there's been a bit of wrangling about the wording of that section. We can talk about it. And and is it fair to sort of summarize kind of what you just outlined there, which I think is great, is basically one, like you said, Alberta is not saying, the legislature is not saying, we're giving ourselves new powers with this act. It's effectively enforcing and declaring and making a little more concrete, as you were saying, um, powers that they're saying uh, they already have constitutionally. So basically, it's just, it, it's sort of a, a needle threading exercise in that way. They're trying to make a statement about something, but they're also not over trying, they're trying also not to overstep their boundaries as far as how the division of powers works in Canada, federally, provincially, and so on. Right, right. And you can see it's sort of, it's sort of, um, you can see it's sort of got legal, the legal logic of it isn't that it's, is that it's, yes, it's giving new powers, but it's also putting them, um, it's also making it so that those new powers are exercised in a way that's sort of uh, got an, an extra layer of democratic legitimacy. And um, oddly enough, given the criticisms of the law, right, the criticism of the mm-hmm. draconian undemocratic law, it's, like it's actually taking powers that are exercised by the executive and tying them to resolution, legislative resolutions. And so long as the Henry VIII powers are a little bit more watered down, that's actually potentially a democratic thing. Um, and uh, and I and I was sort of critical of some of the arguments saying it's just this draconian, unconstitutional, undemocratic thing right away. Um, saying that some of those criticisms are are overlooking the democratic aspect of this, at least. Mm-hmm. My yep. I should say myself and my co-author Jesse Hardery, who knows a lot more about this stuff than I do, um, and actually uh, is probably the one who and I would say he's the one to encourage me to write about this and get into it. I'd actually stick my neck out public about it. Yeah, and, and I'll just, and I actually want to get into the constitutionality discussion in a second, but before I leave the points we were just on, I just, you know, and I'm not saying I believe this, but it just seems like that, you know, an appropriate sort of devil's advocate question to throw out there. Then if we're talking about stuff that isn't necessarily quote unquote new as far as Canadian constitutionality is concerned, then someone might say, well, then if you were already able to do this kind of stuff, Alberta, why have an act at all? Is it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me to be just pure symbolism, but someone might approach it and basically say it is ultimately just a symbolic act. So why have an act at all then, I guess, from their perspective? Well, I think that that's what I just said is probably my first answer to that. It's like the most obvious reason is it actually lends a kind of layer of democratic legitimacy to this, 
to this, these powers, right? Um, hmm. It ties them to legislative declarations. And you can say that's all uh, drama, but it actually does matter to an extent. I mean, insofar as people are criticizing this law already for saying it's, it's about uh, expanding unregulated executive power, well, there's this aspect of the law that's about tying it to democratic votes in the legislature. And that might be a good thing if you're worried about untrammeled executive power. Um, it also might be a good thing in just increasing the sense in which um, Albertans understand and are aware of what their government's up to in terms of non-enforcement or whatnot. It's sort of highlighting and sticking into the into our deliberations and democratic um, uh, process debates about that, right? So we're talking about it a lot more. And that might be, if you think that democratic legitimacy is important, then that's an, that's an important aspect of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, the other reason I think is that it, there's sort of, sort of, sort of uh, Jack Major, the ex-Supreme Court Justice, um, former Supreme Court Justice, uh, made this point that there's a way in which this law puts the onus more. And I think Daniel Smith sort of said this in her, um, in her communications, that this sort of puts the onus more on the federal government to challenge things, to challenge things the province is, un- is unenforcing. And I think that that's right, that there's a, there's a sense in which once you make a declaration like this, and then you make it and you make it public and you and you set the standard of review a certain way that then the onus is on the federal government to come and challenge that or not to not or to challenge that in court or to take over and do it itself. If it wants the if it wants this thing done, this, this kind of uh, criminal law enforced this such and such a way and the province doesn't want to do it, then the federal government can say, well, then you're going to spend the, the provincial government can say to the federal government, you're going to spend the money on forcing this and take the hit when you when you make it happen um, and you enforce these laws, which are unreasonable and unconstitutional in the province's view, um, and maybe even challenge the federal government when it kind of tries to do that in the court, right? So it's it's a bit of um it's a bit of a you like you said it's not necessarily changing the, the constitutional powers at, at stake, but it is tactically deploying them in a certain way. Hmm. And back to I that mean, point about poli- oh, sorry, on a purely, can we talk uh, on a purely political level? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if I was in the NDP, I'd be really mad and really wouldn't like this, right? But you're in kind of, and the reason for that is that when there's a resolution passed like this, the NDP's in kind of a bind. It's got to vote then on whether or not it thinks the federal government's doing something constitutional or not. And if they're voting against that, if they're voting, or sorry, if they're voting against the resolution saying the federal government's doing something unconstitutional, they look like they're supporting Justin Trudeau. And that right. plays right into Daniel Smith's hands. It's politically pretty brilliant. Yeah, you mean, and just to clarify for everyone, you mean the provincial NDP in this case doesn't like it in the provincial legislature. Okay. Exactly. I mean, the provincial NDP in Alberta is a very different beast than the federal NDP, right? The provincial mm-hmm. NDP in Alberta wants to distance itself from the federal NDP in some ways and look more like a moderate um, prairie style uh, a party of government, right? Right. Absolutely. And And just a few more points on the constitutionality of this, you know. Every time something like this happens in Canada, people talk about whether or not, you know, something is troubling constitutionally. I think you've done a good job elaborating on how the fact that, you know, whether one agrees with this whole thing or not, it's indeed constitutional. Like that's your stance. It's well within sort of the uh, the way things are set up in Canada for someone to make this kind of dec- – some I should say some legislature to make this kind of declaration and deploy these powers tactically. And, and you've even said that – you've written that courts have previously opined – that it's great if provinces and the federal government get along, but that there's no obligation actually or constitutional really layer, if you will, that forces them to do so. Can you just elaborate a bit more on that? Because that's very interesting too, because you know, when we're talking about executive power, legislative power, the way the constitution's set up, there's always, of course, judicial review in the judicial system. And you've said that courts have even said like during certain cases or when they've made certain statements that like, yeah, it's great if you guys, I think the quote or the way to sum it up in your article is, you know, it's great if you guys coordinate with each other, but, you know, provinces need not in many areas be subordinated to the federal government. Right. Well, my co-author and I um, are citing that what's called the cooperative federalism jurisprudence. So that the, some of the cases where the federal government, and the provincial government have sort of cooperated on a scheme relating to something that's. For the most part, uh, prima facie within one of their spheres, right? But the but the but the but the level of government whose sphere it's in is welcoming the other government in and saying, yeah, you can spend money and you can tell us, you know, give ideas about what to do and this thing. Um, and so they're cooperating within one of the compartments of the federal structure, right? Now, and our courts have said that's largely okay. And what's interesting about that is that in the modern period, that has become more common. 
Um, and in our history, at that, that was actually unthinkable, um, or not unthinkable, but it was extremely controversial. And um, the prior to, I think, uh, the Supreme Court became our apex court in 1948. Prior to that, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council was our apex court. And so when I teach federalism, I teach a lot of older decisions. When the JCPC, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, was our apex court, and back in the day, the, the JCPC was a fan of what they called watertight compartments. The idea that our spheres were totally sovereign. So, and it needed to be kept as watertight as possible. I mean, it was impossible to keep it totally watertight in some cases. And especially when it came to new powers, things that they weren't sure what to, what to put in which box, right? Right. Um, but in the older Canadian federalism jurisprudence, it was pretty strict. It was not in favor of cooperative federalism. It was, if you're making a law about this, or that within the other sphere, it doesn't matter if the other side wants it or not. It could be a problem. Um, and often the province is jealously guarded there, uh, their, their jurisdiction and vice versa, right? Um, and in the modern period, what we've had is a little bit of flooding compartments. But that just because you say that it's okay to cooperate within one sphere or the other doesn't mean that the spheres don't exist and that it's okay to tell the other side what to do within their compartments, right? Right. As soon as you have the idea that there's a positive obligation that you can tell the other level of government what to do specifically, then you don't have compartments anymore. You just got one big compartment and you have subordinated right. government, depending on, I mean, it could, it's very plausible. It could go the other way. I mean, it's not plausible, but politically plausible, but it's imaginable, right? It could go the other way. It could be that provinces could tell the federal government what to do in federal legislation, right? So it could be, if you thought about it this way, if, if, if one level of government can impose obligations on the other within its own sphere, you could have provinces telling the federal government what to do about the criminal law, right? Um, and with like what, to, how to make criminal law. And that would be flooding the compartments. It would be subordinating the federal power over making criminal law to the provinces. And right. uh, that would be, and that would be against the structure of our constitution. And what, so the point we were making there was specifically to say that if you have federalism and you have divided sovereignty, that means that the one level of government cannot be subordinated to the other level of government and impose positive obligations on it within its sphere of authority. Right. And I think in one speech I saw, I think it might have been by the premier, Daniel Smith of Alberta, but it might have been by one of her ministers as well. But she essentially positioned the, the same point. And she was she's riding on this whole point that she says, you know, the country, I'm paraphrasing here, it's not a quote, but she's basically getting the point across in, in a press scrum that, you know, the country at the end of the day is not supposed to be run as one giant federal you know, entity that, you know, everything's dictated in Ottawa, right? That the idea is that you're supposed to have this federation with relatively, you know, independent jurisdictions. Um, And, you know, obviously that's clearly part of the discussion that we're having here about this specific act, but just zooming out a bit further, getting off the act itself, I mean, there is some context in history to why Alberta specifically, and then, you know, other provinces as well, but specifically talking about Alberta today, feel so strongly about this a certain way, right? You know, there's there's been some very specific issues this year, uh, at least that I've read about and so on and so forth. The firearms one is, is one of them. Um, so I, I was wondering if you can comment on some of the broader context as to like what, you know, what Alberta's perspective, not saying that you believe this, but just what your take on Alberta's perspective is as to why the timing of this is happening now and what kind of broader things they're worried about. Uh, is, is it that Ottawa, the classic Canadian story where you have a province worried about Ottawa encroaching too much? Is it just they don't like certain a certain party or certain legislation? Kind of what's that Alberta perspective at this point beyond, of course, them wanting to govern their own jurisdiction the way they see fit. Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing I would say is that the first part of your comment is right, that, you know, fights over jurisdiction, like I said, relating to back to the JCPC era, they're, they're as Canadian as maple syrup, you know? And I mean, we of course, we don't even, we, we, we can't make maple syrup in Alberta, but it's still Canadian here, right? right. And, uh, you know, so it's a pan-Canadian thing. I mean, and back in the day, some of the primary saber shakers in the JCPC era we're Ontario and Quebec. Um, yep. and, and I mean, of course, Quebec's through, been throughout our history like that, but it was not, but Ontario was a leading member of the provincial rights movement in the early days of Confederation, right? You had politicians like Oliver Mowat. Um, there was, there were provincial non-enforcement crises on the Manitoba, on, on talking about where the Manitoba Ontario border would lie. Right. Um, and, uh, and and I mean you wouldn't believe it. So my students don't believe it. They're like, this is as old. This is as old as Canada. Yeah, they might not. They might. They might not believe. They might not believe that Canadian history is actually so interesting as as people often do discover when they get into it. Right. 
<laughs> yeah. Love it. I love not I love I love watching their kind of eyebrows rise and like yeah. whoa. This is actually kind of uh, spicy stuff. Yeah, it um, is. So I, I would say first of all, yeah, it's not just Alberta, but then you're you're right. There is a modern Alberta story to this. I mean, and it goes back well beyond our day, right? It goes back to my parents' generation and their parents' generations. Uh, I'm an Alberta I'm an Albertan. Uh, I was raised in Calgary. And the Alberta has has um has sought for a long time to assert its jurisdiction, especially over its natural resources, because from the very beginning, um, I mean, this is part of the, there's actually videos being put up by the Alberta government sort of trying to educate Albertans about this, probably because there's so many new immigrants to Alberta that may not know the story as well. Um, but from the very beginning, Alberta did, and Alberta and Saskatchewan did not have control over their natural resources the same way other provinces did when they entered Confederation. And so there was huge wrangling over that. That became a massive power struggle from the very beginning of the provinces. Um, and you saw radical parties being elected on the prairies to fight the federal government along, along those lines, especially asserting power over natural resources. I mean, and those fights didn't go away. They resurfaced again in the 80s, in particular with Pierre Trudeau's National Energy Program and, um, and Peter Lockheed's attempt to fight that and try to, and make uh, constitutional power over resources, part of the, uh, the constitutional wrangling that led to the patriation of the constitution. Um, it was sort of a separate set of a separate fight that the Westerners were really interested in. It's mm-hmm. having, a, having a, an extra provisions protecting that uh, power of provincial resources. Um, and so our fight today is the, the, the fight we're, we're looking at today. I mean, not my fight. Um, right. The, the fight we're talking about is linked in particular even though it's part of a wider Canadian story, it's linked in particular to Western alienation and the idea that Alberta is uh, is particularly treated unfairly within Confederation and um, and that story uh, that history is being directly channeled by the Alberta government as it enacts its law and talks about it. I mean, I was kind of amazed to see uh, to see what one of the UCP cabinet ministers. Um, do a public video where he talked about the origins of the fight over natural resources and whatnot, and had this video reviewing, uh, going over the history of the premiers and their struggle this way. Um, you know, it's of course immediately attacked uh, by people for saying it's denying all these aspects of Alberta's history, of uh, dark parts of Canadian history and whatnot. Of course, I mean, yeah, and, there, and there's and there's points to be made there, um, but it's also uh, somewhat encouraging to see people even talking about this history and thinking about mm-hmm. it again and bringing it up again so that people become a little more constitutionally literate and understanding that this is not just a partisan issue today. It is a structural part of the politics of this country and it's in its constitutional history. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think as well, another dimension to the whole thing, just real quick before we go to break, is that there's, you know, across the country, uh, another thing that's as old as Canada itself and also within Alberta too, there was also the, the classic urban rule divide, right? On how people look at this type of stuff and what kind of, you know, firearms is another great example just to throw all this into a nutshell. Like I think that plays into everything you were just talking about, both from a cross Canada perspective and within Alberta perspective too, I'm sure. I'm not out there. I'm just speculating as well that that probably hasn't changed. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, and that's what I was trying to say that there's a sort of three battlegrounds in Alberta for politics, right? You have the rural, you have Calgary and you have Edmonton, the two, two, two urban ridings and rural ridings. And the, the UCP, once it has the has Wild Rose reunited with Wild Rose, uh, once the PCs reunited with Wild Rose, they they had a lock on the rural rights. Wild Rose had a had a had them in their sights, right? Um, but uh, what's up for grabs is Calgary and Edmonton. What's what's really up for grabs is the true battleground is Calgary because the NDP is Edmonton largely on lock, mm. um, apart from a few uh, constituencies. Even constituencies that vote uh, federally conservative might vote NDP in the provincial election right. whereas calgary is a kind of battleground um and sort of because calgary is the center of the energy industry in canada it has its own politics that are different than so different things might fly here a little bit better than than in the rural ridings um so so power of resources is certainly something people in calgary care a lot about a lot of the oil and oil and gas is the big game in town right um and so that message and hammering on that really really hits home Firearms somewhat more in Calgary than, than in Edmonton, um, but certainly in the rural ridings, a space issue for the UCP. And, uh, and I mean, I think even to an extent in Edmonton, right? Um, Albertans overall are probably a little more pro gun and, and a little more 
um, comfortable with firearms, even in the even in urban ridings. Lots of people come from families that have hunting as a tradition. Um, I grew up in Calgary, and my family hunts, and uh, and it's and it certainly has uh, uh, you know just as much love for firearms as people from the countryside, I think, right. and, uh, and 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 respect and regard for them and and whatnot. But I mean, I think that that's something you find more in Alberta, maybe than other problems. Yeah, I would say so for sure. And actually, it's about at that time where we're going to take a break. I think we covered a lot of great stuff. So we're about at a halfway point-ish. So we'll take our break right now, and then we'll come back and pick up the conversation. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jeff Sigalet today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to CuriousTask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Chris Rondolo, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jeff Sigalet today. So, so Jeff, I think the first half of the conversation was great. I really think we got into a good chunk of details and explained what the Alberta Sovereignty Act is and kind of what it means. And we started getting into some context about Canada in general when it comes to constitutionality and how some of these stories are as old as Canada itself and so on and so forth. Um, I kind of want to zoom out a little further and just talk about, like, you know, other kinds of implications um, as far as this current situation provincially that Alberta is going through and what that means in the context of sort of Canada Confederate Canadian Confederation overall as it stands today. What I mean by that is, you know, we, we do have a history of different provinces taking specific stands against different things at different times in Canadian history. You know, some seem to think these waves of times, you know, I guess I should phrase it this way. Some t- seems to think that these are waves of unity or waves of sort of like trouble or, t- you know, times of disunity. What, what do you sort of feel about that from your perspective when you study all this kind of stuff is when you take a larger perspective, you know, you and I were joking around that this stuff is just sort of normal, you know, Canadian, you know, folklore, effectively, this is what we do here in this country. Other people, when they're kind of living in it, say like, oh, God, the boat's rocking, confederations in crisis, et cetera. Where, where do you kind of come down when you think of this stuff? Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess the long the, the the bird's eye view is that we've had um, we've had always had fights over constitutional jurisdiction. Some even much um, much wilder than what we're seeing in Alberta today. And uh, you know, I mean, we, and, and and that's not to say there's not periods of relative calm versus relative um, discord. And what might be sort of hinging our view of things right now is that during the Harper era, at least, mm. uh, the strategy was to not have, was, it was the idea was the country's tired. I mean, it's sort of, this is sim- and similar with the, the under the uh, Martin uh, government too. And uh, to an extent under Kirchen was the idea was that the country was sick of um, and tired of the debates relating to Quebec sovereignty and re- and renegotiating the constitution in the wake of in the different rounds of negotiations that happened after the patriation of the constitution, right? Quebec famously doesn't sign the constitution when it's and, and agree to it when it's uh, when the patriation is negotiated. Um, and there are subsequent rounds of trying to get Quebec back in, like let's say with Meech Lake. And uh, and that those what you can call what Peter Russell is a great Canadian constitutional scholar called mega constitutional politics. That the 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 raucousness of the mega constitutional politics of negotiating how to define the country in terms of its difference and accommodate all of these diverse aspects of the of the federation. Um, that was that was in some sense. I mean, because partly because it coincided with with the sovereign as another sovereignty vote, uh, another vote for potential separation of Quebec. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that was a, that was in some ways a uh, a true crisis point in confederation. And what we've seen is since then, uh, since the that referendum and uh, since the last round of mega constitutional politics with Meech Lake, the idea politicians, federal politicians, have been less willing to open the constitutional Pandora's box 
and negotiate these things and try to renegotiate the Constitution. And Quebecers, in particular, have gone from being um, uh, from having separatism as a very strong political movement to being nationalist and sovereignist. Um, and at the same time, Western alienation has not gone away. Western alienation has probably intensified, especially after and the wake of the Harper government with the, the Trudeau Trudeau feast government, Trudeau the Sun. Um, and so you've seen some of the um, the politics around. Uh, I think under Justin Trudeau's gov- federal government and the election of of a majority of com- of conservative governments at the provincial level, you've seen an increase in um, in unrest between in federal provincial relations. But at the same time, um, that those that unrest has not been taken the form of direct constitutional negotiations with the federal government is taken the form of provincial governments uh, asserting their sovereignty along different kinds of constitutional lines via unilateral amendments to the constitution and enactments of the notwithstanding clause trying to override um, interpretations by courts of rights of rights that uh, interpretations of the charter uh, that expand uh, the power of courts at the expense of provincial jurisdiction especially. Right. That's a, I think that's an interesting point of view you're sort of outlining, right? Because it's like, you know, some people might look at some of this stuff as sort of some sort of quote unquote crisis in some sense. Uh, you know, some people might view that. I'm not saying I do. But but on the other hand, you're basically saying, look, when we zoom out, you know, no one's talking about separating. No one's talking about breaking up confederation. No one's talking about, you know, in that sort of quote unquote extreme way. What we really have is in this specific case for this discussion, Alberta, but in other cases as well, other provinces sort of like – pushing back, if you will, asserting their dominance a little more, trying to reassert their own jurisdiction sort of when it comes to their relations with the federal government. I mean, a little, at least a half step away from some sort of grand confederation crisis is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's enough. I mean, you, you wouldn't say that there's enough support for separatism in Alberta to make it the kind of crisis that was going on with the referendum with Quebec. But there is a significant amount of discontent and um, an alienation, and that is fueling a particular kind of conflict, set of conflicts with the federal government. At the same time, as nationalism is quite strong in Quebec, but it's sovereigntist; it's not separatist. It's very much about asserting Quebec's power over immigration, asserting Quebec's power over language, and um, trying to ensure that the French language survives in Quebec and that the the Quebec state is. Um, is not subordinated to the federal government along a variety of lines, right? Um, and so I, I think that that is somewhat, uh, you know, there's a unique aspect of that because the the players and who's what their concerns are are unique, but it's also not quite the level of crisis we had in the 90s, and it's not quite the, um, and it's got an interesting aspect too that the federal government kind of wants to tamp down on it and not engage it too much um, because they they know it's kind of opening up the constitution and actual negotiations about it, they know that they're just going to be more and more demands that they don't want to accommodate. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and ask the next question in, in such a way that really doesn't involve sort of partisan po- party politics. I think there's some interesting discussion that can come from this next train of thought, but not trying to make it, you know, some, you know, liberal conservative NDP type thing. So just this year, let's say the idea that the federal government in general of course, the Liberal Party is in power right now. Justin Trudeau is the prime minister, fine. But the idea that the federal government in general is sort of overstepping its boundaries and misstepping on certain legislation has become a very common discussion point, not only in Alberta, but also in other pockets of the country. I'll go back to the you know current firearms discussion that's happening right now. Even the, the premier of the Northwest Territories, for example, was talking about as, as the current bill stands and as the way the government's trying to push things forward. It's an overstep, doesn't understand their way of life up there, et cetera. So like this is not just a theme in Alberta. You know, um, the the Liberal Party itself, again, not to make this a partisan thing, but it's just a fact, they're in a minority government situation right now in the federal parliament. Can, can a party govern effectively like this and keep confidence in parliament? Or do they have to ship gears to keep the ship steady? Like, again, not in a partisan liberal versus conservative thing here, but it seems to me a bit of an interesting situation, especially if we compare it to other historical precedents. You know, can you have a minority government situation at the federal level in Canada where you have a bunch of provinces frankly pissed off about very much different things across the board but there's been a, a lot of this is a 2022 thing to my mind like you've, you've been hearing about a lot of provinces on different levels not too happy with the way things are being governed back in good old ottawa 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the key to this is the federal NDP, right? The federal NDP is less um, is is it is become morphed into more of an urban party, right? And more of a uh, and and is less linked to its rural prairie roots than it than it used to be. Um, so the party of Jagmeet Singh is is very different than the party of let's say Alan Blakeney back in the day, the Premier of Saskatchewan who helped NDP Premier of Saskatchewan helped negotiate confederation. Um, not confederation, but reconfederation, the patriation. Right. Um, so, so I, I think that what I'm, what reason I say that is that you know minority governments can be stable if they have coalition partners that are strongly supporting them. And I think that Jagmeet Singh has uh, has made some conditions on Trudeau's uh, honest support for him. But I think that uh, ultimately he's given a pretty solid amount of support. It seems it's pretty pretty interesting to see with the firearms debate that the right. raise is one of the differences. One of the old differences between the modern Liberal Party and the and the modern NDP and the old and the vestige of the old NDP that's there is is that the NDP has a wing that's very rural, mm-hmm. right? They have ridings in uh, northern BCE and, and Manitoba and uh, and those ridings um, and Northwest Territories and those those ridings are full of people that like guns and they are not happy with this legislation. And I, from what I've heard. Um, the NDP caucus is somewhat divided on this. And it, so it may be a pressure point to an extent. Um, but my sense is that the rural NDP's power is, is, isn't is enough to make that a wedge issue that the coalition collapses. I mean, it's not a formal coalition, right? But it's that the NDP support, mm. it's not enough for the NDP support to collapse. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. Uh, you know, I got that from my friend who's an insider in the NDP, uh, but he's a, and he's a prairie guy. Uh, so he's, he's on the, on the Murray Rankin side of the deal, um, and not, uh, uh, and, and, um, sorry, who was I thinking? I'm thinking of someone else, um, who is the vocal critic of this in the NDP today. Um, but anyways, the, 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 not the, the more, um, rural leaning side of the NDP. And I, I think that that overall, that support of the NDP is putting up to the liberals right now is pretty stable because the NDP has become a more, um, more liberal like right, more liberal like party, and in mm-hmm. some sense, that's also a matter of the change in the Liberal Party, right? The Liberal Party has moved from being the party of of a kind of more center talk, center left, uh, governed pretty centrist right. in a more centrist way, to becoming more involved in identity politics, and um, the party of Justin Trudeau is like is is uh, extremely hard line on things like pro choice, um, whereas traditionally it was the place for um for moderate socially uh, social justice oriented catholic voters to vote right right um and so that's a pretty interesting change in our canadian political history um, that we see today and i just i just don't have any predictions as to what's going to actually happen in that regard yeah as usual just lot, lots of different tensions and lots of lots of different factions to keep an eye on basically <laughs> as per canada it's the usual conservative party is changing too right like on their yep. peer yeah you see so what i think is really interesting just in terms of federalism is what's going to happen if he wins you know what is he going to do what will his mm. strategy be because i don't see any modern conservative party wanting to open up the constitution again no. yeah but at the same time there may be an opening for them to do it in a way that just insofar as there's so much provincial demand, right? And it's part of modern conservatism to sort of take the side of the provinces overall, right? Right. But it may be an opening for them to just sort of unilaterally say, okay, X, Y, and Z, we're just going to give it away and come and take it and that's it, right? Yeah. Well, he's been sort of talking that line too, right? About, look, my goal is just to leave these people be so they can do what they need to do. Kind of the classic stuff, right? When it comes to jurisdiction. And so we'll see. I mean, that might be a way, and maybe, maybe there's a way of like, Seeding jurisdiction by opening it, um, seeding jurisdiction that fitting with the Poilievre story. But I, I don't know how they do that, and I don't know how much uh, appetite he'd have for that. Um, but it could be a way of of seeing the new politics of federalism play out in uh, in a in a new government, uh, let's say. Or I mean, in, uh, you know, it was perfectly perfectly feasible that we just have more of this, right? What we have net, what yeah. we have today. We're definitely in a changing time, though. I feel like like a lot of tides are doing weird things. Maybe not turning, but doing weird things. I think that's right. I don't know. I don't know if they're turning, but I know something's going on. Yeah, exactly. It's a weird time. And for those of you who are listening, that might not be as into Canadian politics. Definitely encourage you to look more into it because it's a lot more interesting than meets the eyes. I hope this conversation has proved to some degree. Um, tying it back up as we sort of enter the last swing of our time here and 
tying up the conversation or, you know, we, we had a lot of great branches that came out of the main tree here, but you know, the main thing is this Alberta sovereignty act. So do you have any predictions about how likely this is all actually to work out the way the premier in Alberta wants it to? And you know, what I mean by that is the following, of course the act has passed and, and there, but ultimately of course, you know, I get the sense it's not just about the act itself. It's about sort of making a stand as a province. Um, you know, obviously we're not talking about toppling the minority government here and putting that kind of upward pressure. They're more interested in their own business in Alberta, of course. I more mean that, you know, this was obviously supposed to have a massive ripple effect. You, you know, you're out there in Alberta too. You know how people are probably talking about it, et cetera. Do you think this has legs and this story will continue and we'll see chapter two, three, and four of this whole Alberta Sovereignty Act thing? Or is this really just sort of a nice flash in the pan for 2022 and then we, we come back and do other things in 2023, if you see what I'm saying? Well, I'd say that that really depends politically what happens, right? We have an upcoming spring election here in Alberta and uh, that's why everyone's kind of going crazy about this act. Um, and we'll see. I mean, if the NDP wins, they'll, re- they'll repeal it. And that'll be, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing they'll repeal it. Um, hmm. And, uh, and, or they might amend it in different ways, but I bet you they'd repeal it. And, um, cause it's pretty unpopular and seen as it's seen and being politically characterized as you're so out of touch, you're worried about all the sovereignty stuff, but you're not caring about the economy and workers and, and whatnot. Right. And, um, and, uh, and you also are, and it's also an infringement on indigenous sovereignty and for a variety of ways. Right. So I'd say. What the act's future and what really happens really depends on politics more than the law, because I don't think my prediction would be that if Alberta, so I say it's facially constitutional law, right? That doesn't mean that mm-hmm. it can be opera, operationalized in ways that are totally unconstitutional, right? Right. So if the federal minister, if, the, if, the, if there's a resolution passed saying you will not enforce any federal laws and all provincial office, provincial uh, officials will are authorized to break all federal law relating to X, Y, or Z, right? Um, you know, let's say, like, you know, that Alberta tries to assert all its sovereignty over the over the provincial parks uh, service and tells Alberta Rangers to Alberta Parks Rangers to go and replace federal rangers, you know, in right. van. I mean that's that's gonna be and and break environmental law, right? Like that's gonna be operationalized in a way the courts are not gonna defer to that. And they're gonna they're gonna say that that's breaking out of insofar as the law looks like it's breaking into um the realm of nullifying federal laws by telling provincial officials to violate federal laws, that's going to be not only more, not only potentially challengeable on the grounds of how the act itself could be read and the way I'm my, my co-author Jesse and I are reading it, Mm -hmm. but it also is going to be challenged just on division of powers grounds saying it's, it's ultra virus because it's, it's, it's it's invalid because it's extending power beyond what's, what's granted. Mm. Um, So, Insofar as that kind of thing goes on, it will be declared unconstitutional. But I don't see it being used that aggressively, and in that in that unconstitutional way. And I think you just we just have been already taking the premier at her word that this is about non-enforcement primarily, and that a non-enforcement within provincial jurisdiction is a very constitutionally sound idea, and the courts are not going to be too suspicious of that. So. There's already been a challenge by some Indigenous First Nations uh, in Canada, uh, in Alberta, to the law saying it violates the, let's say, the duty to consult, right? Hmm. But the challenge is is prima facie running up directly against Canadian Supreme Court precedent. Canadian Supreme Court precedent in this case called Mikisew says that the duty to consult applies to the, the executive, not to the legislature. And they're saying this law is ultra virus because it didn't, it doesn't involve consultations with the uh, in the legislative process, but that seems to run up against, at least in my view, Mikasu and the idea of the new duty to consult as this thing attached to the crown. Now, maybe there's a way to spin that into limiting the act in a variety of ways, um, insofar as it does involve officers of the crown, but it's a very legislatively centered act because it's got these resolutions, right, uh, that are passed in the legislature. So I just don't see a lot of these challenges getting off the ground unless the courts want to be pretty creative. And, mm. um, and they may be, um, but they may be stoking the fire by doing that. So politically, the judiciary may be a little shy of that. And uh, and that that's all not to say though that politics might play a role in this. And that if the if the NDP wins the next election, um, the they'll likely repeal it. And the act doesn't probably doesn't get the the UCP that many points in Calgary, except insofar as maybe it has this dynamic where it's used once or twice before the next election, 
in a way right. that forces the NDP to kind of look like it's taking Justin Trudeau's side. That's not very popular in Calgary um, overall. And that may be what they're angling for. Hmm. Very interesting. And it's about that time we're going to wind up here. So I'm going to move us ahead to the formal wrap-up, basically. So as you may know, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me put to you the the official last question that will end us off here today. So Jeff, let me say, we've talked about a lot. We went in many different directions, but let's see if we can bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of today's question. So let me ask, what do you hope here are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what the Alberta Sovereignty Act is and what it implies and, you know, what people should keep an eye on? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave everything we've talked about here with just one or two or just a few takeaways, what would that ultimately be? Okay, my main, so the bird's eye point is that this isn't necessarily that new in Canadian Confederation, right? There have been cases of provincial non-enforcement before fighting about provincial jurisdiction over everything from straws to eggs to whatever you whatever you want. This is as Canadian as maple syrup. And this particular episode has a particular flavor and a particular takes particular shape because it's about Western alienation in this modern Alberta context. That's true. Um, but I also want to think about the, the minute, like this context, this idea of non-enforcement of provincial laws, provincial non-enforcement of federal laws as being an interesting part of something that makes Canada interesting and makes our idea of federalism interesting. And it, and I want to just talk, I'll say a last word about how this relates to liberty, right? Insofar as federalism in the Canadian tradition allows the province to not enforce, let's say, a law that's seen as overreaching at the federal level within its own jurisdiction, that can be a liberty enhancing idea because it can be a kind of check and balance on the federal power, right? If the federal government enacts a draconian, a truly draconian unconstitutional law, it's obviously overreaching into the lives of ordinary Albertans and the Alberta government refuses to enforce it within its own jurisdiction, that can be liberty enhancing because it can be a way of checking um, the ability of the state to actually uh, to a one level of the state to exercise its power in an arbitrary way and interfere in the lives of its citizens in, ar- in an arbitrary liberty infringing way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that, and I mean, and I think that ultimately, you know, we can argue this can, can, if the provinces all didn't enforce any federal law, would we, would we live in a dysfunctional uh, third world state? Yes. Yeah, there's a rule of law problem with non-enforcement too, right? We don't want all laws non-enforced, but there is a checks and balances idea of how non-enforcement realizes one of the values we think of in relation to federalism, which is liberty. Great. I think that's an excellent place to leave it off. So Jeff Siglet, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.